Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Adam, and I am a director of K-12 ministry here at Lakeland. I'm super excited to be here uh, with you guys this morning and able to to share a message, especially in this series. I don't think there's anything that excites me more right now than finding Jesus through the Old Testament. So I'm super excited and happy to be here. When I first became a Christian in college, it's been a few years now, maybe more than a few years, I, probably like a lot of Christians, attempted to uh, read through the, the entire Bible. I had encountered God. I had seen and heard Jesus, had recognized his beauty, the wonder of his wisdom, the great depths of his love, and I craved to know more. And right here, at my very fingertips, was a 2,500-page book that accomplished that very purpose. What an exciting time in the life of a Christian to be able to investigate and explore this God who was fresh and new and mysterious to me. Again, probably like most Christians, I decided to begin my quest to discover God through uh, the Bible in a pretty reasonable place at the beginning. So I turned to page one and I started to read. Genesis is beautiful. The poetry the wonderment of God creating the universe and everything in it. It's stunning, intriguing in its start. And then we begin to meet the people, these people, these stories. Are you kidding me? I mean, all these years ago as a new Christian, I'm going to have to admit to you, it was a little tough for me to stomach. I tried to make it all the way through, but I have to tell you, I didn't make it through Genesis on my first attempt, or my second, or my third. Eventually, I flipped ahead a couple of thousand pages, found the Gospels and the book of Acts, 
and said, ah, whew, this is, makes much more sense. This is a little easier for me to digest. So for years and years, I largely ignored the Old Testament, apart from maybe a few Psalms or Proverbs here and there. All of those weird laws and crazy stories, honestly, I thought the Old Testament was pretty weird. For those of you who resonate with this at all, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Over the next several months at Lakeland, we're going to embark on a journey. We're going to be attempting to bridge this gap from Old Testament to New Testament together to better understand the complete story of God's love and redemption and even to find the presence of Jesus Christ himself in some places where we might not expect to find him. This morning, we will start with one such place, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Off the top, let's go ahead and identify the huge elephant in the room. This is a really weird story, right? Am I the only one that read that and thinks that? It's definitely one of those stories that I struggled to connect with and certainly struggled to understand completely uh, years and years ago after becoming a Christian. We find a group of people, post-flood, trying to rebuild human civilization as we now know it. The people are gathered together, and the text tells us that they all spoke the same language. Now, we will get to that later in the story. We'll find that that's important, as we already read this morning. But at this point, uh, it's sufficient to say that the text is trying to tell us that the people were unified. In their language, sure, but also in their quest— their quest to build a great city and a tower which reached all the way to heaven. Now, my first big hang-up with this story was always the way that God seemed to be portrayed in it. It almost felt like at this point in the narrative that God had to be rustled out of some state of drowsiness or something. The picture of God that appeared in my own head was as this deity living in the heavens who was largely just ignoring his creation down on earth until he is finally agitated enough by their attempts to build this tower and he can muster up enough energy to come down and see just what they're doing down there. However, a better way of seeing the portrayal of God in the story is to first recognize the real literary genius that's found in this narrative. There's some very clever and very humorous irony actually found in this story. Here's a good example. So the people plan to build a great city with a huge tower that reaches all the way to heaven, right? And after all of this work and time and effort, they build this amazing structure. And then God has to come way down just to even maybe get a glimpse of what they're actually even doing down there. It was a mistake on my part to read this as a commentary on God himself, like God didn't care enough about his creation to be bothered by their shenanigans or something like that. Instead, it makes more sense to read it as a very scathing but very true commentary on humanity. We are prone to some pretty grandiose beliefs about ourselves and our abilities. But without God, we can accomplish actually very little. 
Another issue I had with this story was the harshness with which I read God's response to the people. It felt at first to me like God came thundering down from above, descending on the people with the judgment of confused speech and general irritation with one another as the consequence of their actions. Reading the story in this light caused me to see it as some kind of battle of wills between God and the people. It was two angry combatants going at it in the cosmic steel cage of life, or something like that. But again, there really is a better way of looking at it. The entire story begins with God having a desire for the people to scatter across the land, building new communities, new cities, new civilizations. This was not an angry, spiteful desire on God's part. It was in the people's best interests. In retrospect, knowing what we know now, I think it's pretty easy to take God's side on this. If the people had never scattered across the earth, if they had stayed in one place, multiplying, growing bigger and bigger, but staying confined, that would not have gone well. I mean, increased disease, overcrowding, a fight for limited resources, it would not have gone well. But in Genesis 11, the people, of course, say, no way, God, we'll be the judges of what's best for us, and what's best for us is to stay right here and build this great city. What the humans in the story want to avoid most is being scattered across the face of the whole earth. At the end of the story, of course, we find them, there's some more of that humorous irony, scattered across the face of the whole earth and with this cool new thing called languages to boot. When we read the story from the people's perspective, it's easy to see this outcome and think, oh, I see, God is punishing the people for their rebellious attitudes. However, if we consider God's original desire and his heart behind it, we see that the people ended up not in a worse place for them, but in a better place, and squarely within God's original and sensible desire for them at the very outset. This leads to an important observation that I think has really helped my own personal understanding of some difficult Old Testament scriptures uh, throughout my life. When we alter even just slightly the angle or the perception from which we view some of these stories that are sometimes downright troublesome, we begin to see that God falls back in line with our perception of him throughout all of Scripture. But there's still a really big issue that I had with this story that we haven't yet addressed, and that issue is this. What does it even matter? Why on earth should I care about some marauding group of rebels attempting to overthrow God from heaven and his response to that? How can I possibly gain any insight into my own life when the nature of the people that I'm reading about seems so far from my own? I mean, what are my takeaways even supposed to be? Don't build a structure that goes all the way to the heavens check. 
Don't assemble an army for the purpose of storming heaven, clash of the titan style, and attempt to overthrow God as king and overlord of the universe. Check. I mean, if this is the benchmark for living a good Christian life, I got to be honest with you, I kind of feel like I'm knocking it out of the park. (laughs) It'd be like going to see a priest or a pastor and confessing your sins and being told, well, you know, that's not actually really all that bad compared to like Hitler. I mean, what's the point of this story? We're never going to try to build great cities or a tower reaching all the way to heaven. Or are we? Perhaps the biggest mistake that I made the first several times that I read this story was that I misunderstood the nature of the people's sin. I saw the act of building a tower to heaven as some sort of weird paganism or maybe as a very extreme grasp for fame or even as an overt struggle with God himself. And I really didn't identify with any of those issues. My recent research of this text showed me that I was not alone in my interpretation. An ancient Jewish text called Third Baruch says that the people not only wanted to ascend into heaven, but wanted to pierce it. That is, to wage war against heaven and against God. And this is not just an ancient view of the story. A modern Jewish commentary on the book of Genesis that I found from the year 1998. It's not so long ago, despite what my high school students might tell you. I see some of them in the audience right now. Those those ones are mostly nice to me. Other ones might have made a comment like that. But it said this. The real crime involved in the building project was the tower itself, which was intended for the purpose of storming heaven or some related evil desire. For this plan and the arrogant attitude underlying it, the builders were punished. Their leader was Nimrod. He himself was a wicked giant and a rebel against God. He may have been aided by other giants. As a result of this deed, the people themselves were scattered and their great tower was cast down to the ground. I don't bring up an interpretation like that one in order to ridicule it. I actually think that's a very common understanding of this story, not just from Jewish circles, but Christian ones as well. However, I do want to assert that nothing in the actual text that we read this morning requires such an extreme interpretation. And I want to assert that today, as modern readers of the Bible, we have a lot more to gain from a different understanding of the tower builder's real sin. You see, over time, I have come to realize that the real underlying sins of the people at Babel are actually very near and dear to my own struggles in life. If we go back to two of the statements made by the tower builders— I think that we will start to see this part of the story from a little different angle. Come, let us make a name for ourselves, they say in verse 4. Pride. Lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth, they say right afterward. Fear. It's not out and out 
bloody, violent revolution. Certainly not at its heart. It's not a desire to overthrow God or to wrestle power and control away from him. No, the people's sin is much more simple and common in its sinfulness. It's pride and fear. And can't we relate to that? So much of the entirety of human sin and suffering is pride and fear. The voice in our head after we get passed over for a big promotion at work saying, nobody values you. Nobody sees or even cares about how hard you work. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. The anger we feel when someone challenges our worldview or our religious leanings or our political affiliation, deep down, this is fear. Fear, perhaps, that being challenged will uncover uh, our lack of grasp of the truth or our uncertainty. Lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. When we begin to count up the number of times we've done the dishes at home or taken out the trash compared to certain other unnamed residents, (laughs) come, let us make a name for ourselves. When we are faced with a real and legitimate fear of not being truly loved by those around us, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. The fact of the matter is, we all struggle with these things. It's an unfortunate reality of the human condition. We are all in the business of tower building. Our entire lives are giant cities, huge towers constructed to make names for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. We spend an ungodly amount of time attempting to make up for our feelings of inadequacy or our fears of unwantedness by trying to build towers to heaven, trying to construct a solution to our problems using our own abilities, our own talents, our own willpower. The reality is, deep down, we do not trust God. We do not trust whether he knows if we need to scatter across the earth or not. We do not trust the love and the mercy and the forgiveness that he has promised us throughout Scripture. We say, I don't know. Maybe it's not enough. Does it really help me live in the day-to-day? And the real kicker is we make this mistake of exaggerating the sins of the people very purposefully. We want to interpret this text in an overblown, extreme way. We need to. Why? Because it separates us from those who clearly do wrong. It separates us from those who are clearly out of favor with God. It allows us to say, like the Pharisee in the book of Luke, thank God I am not like these sinners, these cheaters, these liars around me. Thank God I am not a tax collector or a prostitute. Whatever my sins are, at least I'm not a tower builder. 
The problem, of course, the first problem is that we all are tower builders. We're experts at it. We've spent a lifetime learning how to do it in ways so subtle we don't even remember that's what we're doing. The second problem is it is all completely and utterly futile. Our towers are built to crumble from the very start. Does it make me feel better to sit and think about how others are missing out on my greatness? Does it make me feel better to lash out at those who disagree with me on Twitter or Facebook? Does it make me feel better to keep accounts of how many times others have wronged me? It doesn't. It never does. We might scoff at the people of Babel, and rightfully so. Really? You're going to build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven. Good luck with that. But I have no right to cast the first stone. My tower building projects are just as absurd. After a lifetime of trying to fix and build my life my own way and not being satisfied with it, I yet continue to build brick after brick. So what do we do now? (laughs) How can we possibly fix this problem to mend our tower-building ways? For the answer to that, we're going to go to an interesting place. We're going to go to the New Testament, to the book of John chapter 1, to a moment when Jesus himself meets one of his future disciples, a man named Nathaniel. We'll pick up in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of a God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is perhaps my favorite passage in all of Scripture. You might be thinking to yourselves, hmm, Kind of a weird passage to be someone's favorite. Well, let me explain. Here we find an interesting story in which Jesus is apparently meeting Nathanael for the very first time, and yet knows not only his first name, but apparently quite a bit about his character as well. Nathanael is surprised by Jesus' knowledge of him and wonders, how can he know so much? Jesus responds by saying, you know, that one time when you were sitting under that fig tree, I saw you then. Nathaniel's response to this statement seems way out of whack with what we would expect. He declares Jesus, God and Messiah, on the spot. This would lead us to believe that whatever happened to Nathaniel under that fig tree that Jesus spoke of, it was an experience that went well beyond just a nice afternoon in the shade. 
But it's Jesus' next line that is perhaps most confusing in this passage, and yet is the line that makes this one of my very favorite passages in Scripture. You believe in me because I know what happened to you under the fig tree, Jesus says. But just you wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. You will see heaven opened and the angels of a God ascending and descending on me, on the Son of Man. Now, I will admit, if I saw heaven opened up, an angel start flying up and down, ascending and descending upon some guy, well, that would be something. That would probably cause me to believe in things that I otherwise hadn't before. But Jesus is actually referencing an Old Testament story here. And it's knowing that story that will begin to give us a glimpse into exactly what was going on here and what was going on at Babel. In Genesis chapter 28, a man named Jacob found himself at wit's end. He had tricked his blind-as-a-bat father into thinking he was his older brother Esau, upon which his father had mistakenly blessed him and given him the inheritance that in that time and culture was reserved only for the oldest male child. So Jacob's last words to his dying father were a lie, and he had swindled his own brother out of basically everything that he ever could have owned. Jacob had just now begun to realize this great debacle debacle that he had created for himself. His brother was not likely to feel just a little bit put out by this turn of events. He was likely to be completely and murderously angry about it. Jacob had built this nice big tower reaching all the way to heaven, and now the whole thing was about to topple right back down on his head. One night as he was traveling, Jacob lay down to sleep, and he had a dream. We'll pick up in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. For those of you who are wondering why this sermon is titled, Jesus and the Two Towers, hopefully now you know, has very little to do with the Lord of the Rings. The two towers of the title is referencing are Babel and this one that Jesus, excuse me, that Jacob experienced in his dream at Bethel. 
This is a pretty famous story in Genesis, uh, sometimes referred to as Jacob's Ladder, sometimes called the Stairway to Heaven. Great song. Jacob sees a ladder or stairway or a tower, right? And the top of it reached all the way to heaven. And angels were flying up and down, ascending and descending on the staircase, as if to say, this way, this is where you're wanting to go. With all of your troubles and your strife, this is what you need. And then God himself appears and says, I am God. I am with you. I will never leave you. And Jacob wakes up. And then Jacob, (laughs) swindler and tower builder though he is, he says something remarkable, something really surprising. You see, when we picture a staircase leading to heaven, our minds immediately think of this great tower going up, 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 leading up to heaven, up to God, which we must now begin to climb. We must now begin to put our foot forward, one after another, going up, 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 all the way up until we reach our destination. We reach our promised land. We reach God himself. But after experiencing God through his dream, Jacob had no illusions about trying to ascend the staircase. No. He said with all certainty, oh, wow, God is now here with me. You see, the staircase wasn't leading up in Jacob's dream. It was leading down. The purpose of the staircase wasn't to offer Jacob one last test, one last hurdle to be uh, taken, one last tower to be built before he could obtain the love and the joy and the peace he was looking for. No. The purpose of the staircase was to let Jacob know those things, they are available to you right here and right now. They have already come. They are in your midst. God is with you, and it has nothing to do with how high you are able to climb. God has come down the staircase, and he has come after you. We do not build our way up to God. We can't. Our towers will always crumble. They will always fail and we will be scattered across the face of the earth every single time. Search your hearts. You know this to be true. We've all lived enough life to know that our tower-building abilities aren't good enough to bring us joy, to bring us peace, to bring us love. But it's okay that we can't build our way up to God. It's more than okay Because God has made his way down to us. And as we think back to Jesus' words to Nathanael from the book of John, we begin to remember how Jesus fits into the story. The angels were ascending and descending on the staircase. And Jesus is saying, 
That staircase is me. I am the way to God. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn me. You can build your towers to Babel all day, every day. But there's no need. There is an answer. There is a solution to the problems that plague you, to the problems that plague the entire world. But that answer is me. You see, just as with God confusing the people's languages, the halting of the tower building project was not a harsh or angry judgment. It was a complete and total mercy. The people believed they could build this tower that reached all the way to heaven. And they believed that doing so would fulfill them in deep and meaningful ways. It would give them an identity. It would give them a foundation they could build their entire lives upon. And God knew that neither of these beliefs was built on even an iota of truth. Him stopping the construction of the Tower of Babel saved the people years, if not decades, of futility. The implications of this truth are so vast, so earth-shattering, so transformative. What would it be like if we all truly believed we had no need to build our own towers? This truth that God has come down to be among the people he created in order to rescue them, in order to redeem them, in order to save them from everything that plagues them. This truth, which we call the gospel, it can redeem everything. From the sideways glance you give to your family member who says something you don't like at the dinner table, to the images we see of war and famine and death and destruction across the world on our television sets. The voice in our head after we get passed over for that big promotion at work, saying, nobody values you. Nobody sees or even cares about how hard you work. Jesus says, let me show you how much I value you. Enough to experience pain and suffering and even death just to be near you. The fear and anger we feel when someone challenges our worldview Jesus says, you don't have to fight that battle. I have already fought the biggest battle against the worst enemies of sin and death, and we are already victorious. When we begin to count up the number of times that we've done the dishes or taken out the trash at home, Jesus says, I, God, the creator of the universe, came not to be served, but to serve others. May my strength living in you help you to serve others too. And the feeling of fear, that legitimate fear that we may feel that those around us may not truly love us, Jesus says, that's not true. You are so loved. You are so adored. Stop working on that tower. Just sit here with me under this fig tree and let me show you 
whether you're a lifelong Christian or someone who is just exploring what this Jesus stuff is even all about, I hope that this picture, this story calls to you and it beckons to you. It makes you say, wow, I want that. No matter where we are on this journey of knowing and loving God, today I offer a really simple next step for each one of us. Let's engage God the way Jacob did. Let's allow ourselves to dream first of a redeemed life, of a redeemed people, of a redeemed world. And let us wake from that dream saying, surely God is in this place through Christ, through beautiful, wonderful Christ. He has come and I want what he has brought. We're going to continue to worship right now through music. I encourage each of you to do whatever it takes to connect with God, to seek God during this time. Whether that means sitting quietly and listening, whether that means engaging in songful, prayerful worship. God, we are here, and so are you. May we hear your voice. God, may you make us aware of the error of our ways, the futility of our tower building, and let us replace those instead and rest in you, the God who has come down to us. May that truth, may it transform us as your people, God, and may it change the world. And now may we go in the true peace and the true hope, and the true love that is Jesus Christ himself. Amen.